President Biden and NATO allies are meeting in Lithuania to discuss Russia's invasion of Ukraine and Sweden joining the group. It's Tuesday, July 11th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, the devastating flooding in parts of Vermont and New York. Rain's moving out, but flooded rivers have not crested yet. Also this hour, Republican lawmakers in Iowa want to restrict abortion in that state to six weeks of pregnancy, and abortion providers are getting ready. We will do our best to challenge it. We will comply while it is in effect, but we will still provide abortion care in the state of Iowa up to what is legal. Plus, trying to break down some of the barriers formerly incarcerated people face after release and Americans changing attitudes toward marriage. Forecast says sunny today, highs in the 80s. It's 7.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The NATO summit is getting underway in Lithuania with NATO leaders. President Biden is in Vilnius for the conference. He's very pleased with the news that all obstacles have been lifted to allow Sweden to join the military alliance. The first time that NATO leaders will meet with 31 together and looking forward to a meeting very soon with 32 members with the addition of Sweden. Turkey had blocked Sweden's NATO bid, claiming Sweden encouraged Kurdish separatists. Turkey has now dropped its opposition. As the NATO summit gets underway in the Lithuanian capital, NPR's Eleanor Beardsley has met Lithuanians who have volunteered to help out. She has this report from Vilnius. Rima Olberkite is giving directions to visitors in the streets of Vilnius. She was 13 when the Soviet Union broke apart in 1991, but remembers life under Soviet rule very well. We were forbidden to do a lot of things, to go to the church, to eat what we want, to buy clothes because there were nothing to buy in the Soviet Union. Olberkite says today Lithuania is a totally different, dynamic place like all the Baltic nations that gained their independence. But she says Russia has not changed, and that's why she's volunteering at the NATO summit. We have constant threats from Russia and constant threats uh, of uh, not knowing what's going to be tomorrow. And that's why, she says, Lithuanians are so thankful to be a part of the NATO alliance. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Vilnius. Fresh grand juries are being seated today in Fulton County, Georgia. Later this summer, prosecutors are expected to ask jurors to indict multiple people. They allegedly tried to interfere with Georgia's 2020 election results. From member station WABE, Sam Greenglass reports. Inside the Fulton County Courthouse in downtown Atlanta, two grand juries are being selected. They will each meet twice a week through the end of August and will hear dozens of criminal cases. Among them will be Fulton County's ongoing investigation into efforts by former President Trump and his allies to overturn his loss in 2020. District Attorney Fonnie Willis has signaled she will soon ask a grand jury for indictments, requesting court staff to work from home on 10 grand jury days beginning July 31st for safety reasons. Grand juries only have to be convinced that a trial is reasonable and don't have to rule unanimously. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. Heavy rain continues to fall in New England and Vermont continues to face unprecedented flooding. There are reports of catastrophic damage. Now officials in the city of Montpelier are warning that a nearby dam could soon be overtopped by flood water, something that's never happened before. This could send more water cascading into Montpelier. Its downtown is already closed because of massive flooding. You're listening to NPR News. 
Flash floods have ravaged parts of northern India after torrential rains over the past few days. Sushmita Patak reports India's weather department is predicting more heavy rain in several states across the country. The Himalayan state of Himachal Pradesh is among the worst hit. Sections of key highways there are damaged. Videos show homes crumbling under landslides and cars being swept away by overflowing rivers. Heavy rain is common during the ongoing monsoon season, but scientists say climate change is making it more intense, increasing the likelihood of landslides in vulnerable hilly areas. In the capital, New Delhi, traffic over an old bridge on the Yamuna River was stopped as the water level rose above the danger mark. Authorities are also evacuating people living in nearby areas that are prone to flooding. For NPR News, I'm Sushmita Pathak in Delhi. Flooding extends into China as well. Reports from China indicate that heavy rain will continue to fall there this week. This comes along with searing heat in China. Temperatures over 100 degrees have been reported just outside of Beijing. Many Chinese employers were told to limit outdoor work for their employees because of the heat. The White House is releasing fresh plans to boost testing, tracking, and treatment of street drugs that are laced with xylazine. It's known as Trank because it's a veterinary tranquilizer. U.S. deaths from xylazine are rising. Biden administration officials warn that while fentanyl in the street drug supply is very dangerous, the presence of xylazine is even deadlier. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Flood warnings remain in effect for parts of the Connecticut River Valley in western Massachusetts this morning, and that's because of the historic amount of rain that fell in that part of the state as well as in Vermont, and that's on top of a lot of rain in the past month. Sarah Porter is with the Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency, and she says the public should continue to monitor forecasts for possible flash flooding. Call 911 if it is a life safety issue or a threat to their property with the flooding in their homes. And then in the more urban areas, it's really encouraging people not to drive through flooded roadways. You really can never tell how deep the water is when you're in your vehicle. Five communities in Massachusetts, including North Adams and Deerfield, declared a state of emergency because of flooding yesterday. Massachusetts has issued more than double the number of learners' permits since the start of this month compared to the same time last year. That comes after a new law went into effect July 1st. It allows people to apply for learners' permits and driver's licenses regardless of their immigration status. 2,800 learners' permits have been issued so far, and state officials expect more people to apply this week. The state will provide $2.5 million for job training to formerly incarcerated individuals. The money will go to 14 groups across the state that are training people leaving prison for work in manufacturing, clean energy, hospitality, and other industries. State Labor and Workforce Development Secretary Lauren Jones says the program will help fill worker shortages across Massachusetts. This is really important as we try to expand the workforce and really reduce barriers for employment as we try to provide a more even playing field for individuals that deserve a second, third, or even fourth chance. The latest round of funding is expected to provide training for almost 300 people. 
The city of Worcester officially launches its 311 mobile app today. It'll complement the city's 311 hotline, which allows people to submit non-emergency requests. That hotline, though, only runs on weekdays. The app will give people 24-7 access. Boston has a similar hotline and app. The time is 8 minutes past 7. WBUR supporters include the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and Jarl and Pamela Moan, thanking the people who make public radio great every day and also those who listen. In our forecast, sunshine today. Highs in the upper 80s. Tonight should be clear with lows in the 70s. Tomorrow, sunny. Temperatures tomorrow in the 90s. It is 69 degrees in Boston. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue will help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org slash rentals. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. In a few minutes, we'll hear about how flooding in the Northeast is threatening homes and forcing evacuations. But first, the 31 leaders of NATO member countries are meeting in Lithuania today. And pretty soon, there will be 32 of them. In a deal brokered with Turkey just before this summit got rolling, Sweden will be allowed to join the transatlantic military alliance. White House correspondent Asma Khalid is with us now from Lithuania's capital, Vilnius. Asma, good morning. Good morning, Michelle. So yesterday, you were reminding us about why Turkey has been blocking Sweden's admission for more than a year. Turkey had these complaints that Sweden was not doing enough to clamp down on groups that it views as terrorists. So what Mm -hmm. broke the logjam here? Well, last night, NATO Secretary General met with the President of Turkey and the Prime Minister of Sweden, uh, and here he is, Jens Stoltenberg. This is good for all of us. This is, this is good for Sweden. Sweden will become a full member of the alliance. It's good for uh, Turkey, because Turkey is a NATO ally that will benefit from a stronger NATO. And then, of course, it's good for the whole alliance. And, and Michelle, really, you know, as part of this deal, Sweden agreed to a series of steps to cooperate with Turkey on counterterrorism issues. Uh, NATO also said it would create a new coordinator for counterterrorism. Uh, and notably, Sweden also agreed to reinvigorate Turkey's efforts to join the European Union. Uh, Turkey's president, in return, agreed to lift his opposition to Sweden joining NATO. And this comes as NATO is really trying to show that it's fully united in the face of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You know, it's worth remembering that it was, in fact, that very invasion that was the catalyst for Sweden, which had long been traditionally unaligned, deciding that it, in fact, wanted to join the NATO alliance. Did the U.S. play any role in getting this deal done? Well, White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan told reporters this morning that the United States had significant recent engagement in bringing this deal about. Uh, Biden and the president of Turkey, uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, spoke for some 45 minutes uh, on Sunday as Biden flew across the Atlantic Ocean. And the two men are scheduled to talk more in person later today in Lithuania. Uh, In a statement last night, Biden said he welcomed the deal and stands ready to work with Erdogan on enhancing defense and deterrence. 
Uh, experts I spoke with last week said that Erdogan was trying to use this Sweden membership issue as leverage to get a deal on F-16 fighter jets from the U.S. Uh, that is, appears to be in the works, though it's not a done deal yet. The White House has been consulting with Congress, which ultimately would need to approve the deal. So let's go back to the question of Ukraine. Ukraine, of course, has been trying to join NATO since like 2008. And mm -hmm. President Vladimir Zelensky is actually attending this summit and said he wants a clear signal that his country is on the path to membership. So what can you tell us about that? Well, the White House has been clear it does not think Ukraine is ready to join NATO now, that bringing Ukraine into NATO at this moment would then bring NATO into war with Russia. Here's National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. The question is not Ukraine and NATO now here at Vilnius. The question is, what's the pathway towards Ukraine's future membership? And on that question, Michelle, he does think the allies can come to some agreement. I will say, though, a big uh, unanswered question is what exactly it means to be at war with Russia. Because in addition to the current invasion, there's the issue that Russia annexed Crimea from Ukraine about a decade ago. And the White House has not been clear on how that issue, uh, that would possibly affect Ukraine's bid to join NATO. Uh, Biden is slated to meet with Ukraine's president here tomorrow in Lithuania. So we'll see how that goes. That is NPR's Asma Khalid in Vilnius, Lithuania. Asma, thanks so much for your reporting here. My pleasure. Good to speak with you. U.S. Senators plan to hold a hearing today on the proposed merger between golf's PGA Tour and its biggest competitor, Saudi-owned Live Golf. Many golf fans were stunned last month when the deal was announced between the two rival organizations. And U.S. Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin is the ranking Republican on the Senate's permanent subcommittee on investigations. He joins us now. Uh, Senator, first, uh, you said that Congress should not get involved in this deal, but now Congress is. So what will your role be in this inquiry? I'll try and play a constructive one. Uh, I think this hearing could give the PGA a really good opportunity to, first of all, lay out just the challenge it faces trying to manage professional golf. It's not an easy thing to do. You know, how do you keep all the players satisfied, properly compensated, showing up at your tournaments so you have the revenues to uh, keep your, your league growing and, and providing the, the type of golf that uh, fans expect to see? Then on top of that, the creation of the live, which really represented an existential uh, threat to the PGA. The PGA's net worth uh, in 2021 was one and a quarter billion dollars. The, the Saudi public investment fund is worth somewhere between six and seven hundred billion dollars, about 500 times the size of, of the PGA. And they're just not, uh, you know, they're not competing in, with general market forces. If they want to get involved in, in sports around the world, they're going to get involved and you have to deal with that reality. If Saudi Arabia was not involved in this merger, would Congress still care? Probably not, although Congress probably has a role just in terms of sorting out the confusion of antitrust laws as they relate to sports teams. Uh, it really is a, a very muddled, very confused, unsettled area of law that at some point in time Congress could take a look at, but generally I'm not a real fan of some of the solutions Congress comes up with, but it's a legitimate uh, area of concern. So even with Saudi Arabia's human rights record, uh, that wouldn't be that big of an issue if they weren't involved in this? I'm not exactly sure I understand the, the, the question. I, you know, I would point out that uh, it'd be grossly unfair to expect the PGA Tour to bear the full burden of holding Saudi Arabia accountable, for example, for the assassination of Khashoggi. Uh, I'd also point out that anybody drives a car or you know, use oil-based products, I mean, we're involved in filling up the Saudis' coffers, so there's complicity there. And you know, I would also argue if, 
if Saudi Arabia, if, if investing in, in global sports, including golf, if that helps them modernize and offer more rights to women, I mean, isn't that a good thing as opposed to a bad thing? So, um, listen, it's a complex world. You have to deal with the realities that you face. I'd rather have uh, the, the Saudis invest their oil wealth in America as opposed to adversaries like uh, Russia or China. Can your committee nixed the proposed merger? Can, can it get in the way of it? Well, that's one of my concerns. That's why I would not be holding this hearing. Uh, you know, we don't have, there's no deal there yet. And, you know, negotiations generally are conducted in private for a good reason. You know, there are ideas thrown out, uh, rejected. And, uh, you know, I, I would prefer that Congress wasn't uh, making public uh, very delicate negotiations. This, this is not a done deal yet. What are you hoping to hear from the people that are going to be testifying today, people from the PGA Tour? Well, again, just really lay out, here are the challenges we face just running golf. Here's the added challenge with the PIF. This is why we were forced to try and come to some accommodation for the good of the game of golf. Isn't the good of the game of golf to have all its competitors all in one league? That's the way other sports work. If you want the absolute best competition, that's true. And that's the, the, really the threat that uh, the Live posed to uh, PGA. It looks like they may have the possibility of combining these leagues. And as a golf fan, I would think that'd be a good thing. U.S. Senator Ron Johnson, ranking Republican on the Senate's Permanent Subcommittee on Investigation. Senator, thanks. Have a good day. New England and parts of New York are drenched after heavy rains and flash flooding. At least one person has died. And Vermont is one of the hardest hit states. Rivers there threatened to overflow their banks, flooding towns, closing roads and forcing evacuations. In some parts of the state, trapped drivers had to swim out of their floating, swirling cars. And President Biden issued an emergency declaration to release federal aid. Vermont Public's Liam Elder Connors is with us now with an update on the latest. Good morning. Good morning. So I understand that you're in Burlington, which is in the northwestern part of the state. What's the situation there? Well, it's still raining, and parts of the state are still under a flood warning this morning. There have been evacuations across the state. Nearly a dozen emergency shelters were set up yesterday. And as of last night, there were more than 50 water rescues made by emergency crews. And a big concern is that things are potentially going to get worse. Several major rivers were expected to crest overnight and early this morning, and officials are monitoring several dams that might overflow, including one near Vermont's capital, Montpelier. Hmm. So how unusual is this amount of rain? And, and you've been giving us a sense of this, but how, how destructive has it been so far? Well, we've seen lots of road closures. Uh, flooding has been bad in, in downtown Montpelier, especially. And the last time we saw anything similar to this was more than a decade ago. Tropical Storm Irene brought 11 inches of rain in 24 hours. Now, we're still waiting for the totals of this storm, but this storm's been lingering, which concerns safety officials. I talked to Moortown Fire Chief Stefan Pratt, and he told me he's worried about these conditions. It looks like it's going to stay at that crest mark in major flooding for approximately 12 hours. Whereas Irene, it came up and then it went back down. We're going to be at, you know, 12 hours of it staying high, which is, you know, very dangerous. 
So I visited Moortown yesterday afternoon. That's a small town in central Vermont of just over 1,700 people. And like many small towns in Vermont, a river runs through it. In fact, there's a river that runs along the winding road that leads to that town, which is also pretty common in Vermont. And while I was driving there, water was lapping along the banks. And in Moortown, they were preparing to evacuate about 30 homes if the river rose. And the water was rising pretty fast. While I was out reporting in about an hour or so on my drive home, one of the roads that I had passed by closed down due to the river flooding over its banks. Mm. So the conditions have been changing pretty quickly. Well, so that's a lot to manage. So before we let you go, Liam, what's the forecast for the next couple of days? Well, the rain is expected to end today, though there is a potential for more rain later in the week, which has forecasters concerned about more localized flash flooding. In addition to Vermont, though, the storms hit other New England states like Massachusetts and Connecticut. Like we mentioned earlier, New York's been hit pretty bad in the northern part of the state with widespread flooding in the mid-Hudson and Finger Lake regions. Officials in Vermont are hoping things are going to dry out over the next couple of days so we can assess the damage. And then, of course, the cleanup will begin. That's Vermont Public Reporter Liam Elder Connors. Liam, thank you so much for this reporting. You're welcome. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes on Morning Edition, lawmakers in Iowa meet in special session today as Republicans there try to pass a bill banning nearly all abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. It's 21 minutes past seven. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New England Innovation Academy in Marlboro. Day and boarding school for grades 6 to 12. Free Innovation Studio Workshop, July 17th. NEIacademy.org. Stephen Dettelbach is the current head of the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. One of the things I get a little nervous about is that somehow that people will come to accept it, that this level of gun violence in the United States of America is kind of who we are as Americans, part of our culture. It is not. But can ATF itself be doing more? We'll sit down with the man tapped with enforcing the country's gun laws. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In our forecast, sunshine today, highs in the 80s, clear tonight, lows around 70. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed. Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Viking.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Many people are used to thinking of marriage as the start of adult life. Get married, set up a house, have kids, in that order. But Americans' attitudes toward marriage are changing. Today, more people are tying the knot in their 40s and older, and the share of people who never marry has doubled since 1960. So we asked some people over 40 to tell us their stories about marriage and relationships. Bethany Phillips in Los Angeles told us she wed for the first time at age 43 after enduring years of unwelcome comments about her single status. It was definitely like, oh, you're just going to be a spinster, I guess. Steve Peterson is over 40 and single in Salt Lake City. He says marriage is not a panacea for life's problems. If you are not happy by yourself, a relationship in and of itself is not going to make you happy. And Christy Riggs in Washington, D.C. says she likes being single in her 40s, partly because she doesn't have to share her bathroom. I have my towels on the rack situated a certain way and my perfume bottles and everything. And when they come over, like the relationships I've had recently, I'll come into my bathroom after they've left and it's like, what has happened in here? Like, what? The, the towel is on, my little Chanel towel is on the sink and I'm like, oh God. So what does this shift in traditional ways of thinking about marriage mean for individuals and for society? And if you're over 40 and single, what are the chances you will eventually marry? I posed that question to sociology professor Susan Brown. She leads the Center for Family and Demographic Research at Bowling Green State University. Well, I think this is really the million-dollar question for us and one that we've struggled with in the field for some time, which is, does marriage delayed really mean marriage foregone? That is, if you wait too long to get married, are you perhaps less likely to ever marry at all? Marriage overall in the United States continues to be in decline. Nonetheless, what we're finding is that for midlife adults, who we define as age, ages 40 to 59, we're actually seeing an uptick in first marriage entry. What do people think about marriage or feel about marriage? Do people still want to be married? Well, absolutely. I think uh, Americans are very much the marrying kind. We see high levels of support for marriage in most young adults. But at the same time, I think the, the bar for marriage has really ratcheted up such that now we would describe marriage as a capstone experience. It's something that people do after they have achieved a number of other accomplishments in life, whether that be completing their education, getting a real job, paying off or minimizing their debt, and being ready to buy a house. And those are high hurdles for a growing share of Americans. And I think that these factors are really contributing to this extended delay that we're seeing in marriage entry these days. The growing number of people who are not married, are they kind of, in a way, disadvantaged by social policy? Yes. And we would uh, describe marriage today as an engine of inequality that in fact the gap between the married and the unmarried in terms of financial resources, health and well-being is growing. And part of this has to do with changing patterns of mate selection. So whereas in the past individuals would have selected spouses more along those traditional religious lines, for example, um, now they're selecting them along the lines of education. And we're seeing the doctor marry the doctor, the lawyer marry the lawyer, as opposed to the doctor marry the nurse or the lawyer marry the secretary. And so marriage is actually contributing to 
widening economic inequality in the U.S. today. Do we have any way to capture, though, whether even if people aren't married in the traditional sense that, you know, a formal ceremony recognized by the state, are there other forms of partnership that we're just not capturing? Yes. I mean, certainly there's cohabitation. People are familiar with that. And that has become quite common across the life course. We're seeing that at all stages of adulthood. But beyond that, we want to be mindful of partnerships uh, that are non-co-residential, living apart together, or LAT relationships, Hmm. really represent what I think could be argued as the next frontier in partnership and, and relationship formation behaviors in the sense that much like cohabitation was introducing more flexibility beyond marriage, now LAT partnerships provide still more independence and autonomy. And I think particularly for those in the second half of life, this is a very appealing form of partnership uh, provided that one can afford to live independently. If fewer people are getting married, And if they're getting married later and presumably more mature, does this mean that marriages are more stable? Yes, marriages are much more stable today than they were a few decades ago. And in fact, the divorce rate in the United States has been slowly but steadily decreasing since it peaked in 1979. But we're seeing a tremendous drop in divorce among young adults in their 20s and through their 30s. And this has to do in part with exactly what you're describing, that individuals are marrying at later ages these days. They're more mature. They're more economically secure. And this contributes to marital stability. Interestingly, where we're seeing um, a rise in divorce is actually in the second half of life among people over the age of 50. We refer to this as gray divorce. And actually, one in 10 people getting divorced today is over the age of 65. Hmm. Wow, that's so interesting. Now, I'm also interested in whether these patterns, these new patterns of living are a problem. I mean, is this something that we should worry about? I think that the research that's emerging, whether it's studies showing that midlife first marriage is on the rise or gray divorce is a growing phenomenon, shows us that perhaps what we need to do is shift our focus towards middle age and beyond, and that we're actually seeing a lot of family change in those demographics that tend to be overlooked. And so for me, that's what's been most eye-opening and exciting about this area of research is um, we're seeing a tremendous amount of flux in family formation and dissolution patterns for middle-aged adults and beyond. Susan Brown is the director of the Center for Family and Demographic Research at Bowling Green State University. Professor Brown, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. My pleasure. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Today's top stories are just ahead. And at 745 on WBUR's Morning Edition, a story about some experts warning seniors about potentially negative interactions between cannabis and other medications. It's 730. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. 
NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says the alliance will send Ukraine a positive message about its path to membership at this week's NATO summit. The meetings got underway today in Lithuania after Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, withdrew his objections to Sweden becoming a member of NATO, moving Sweden a step closer to joining the alliance. Earlier in Vilnius, Stoltenberg spoke about Sweden. Also this sends a very clear message to, to, to Russia, to President Putin, uh, that NATO's door remains open. President Biden is attending the NATO summit. He's expected to meet with Turkey's president later today. There are protests in Israel over the government's plan to overhaul the country's judiciary. Demonstrators are blocking roads leading to cities such as Jerusalem. NPR's Daniel Estrin is in Tel Aviv. He says the demonstrations follow the latest action by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's parliamentary coalition. Last night, Parliament gave initial approval to a major change in how courts rule. Um, this change would block the court from intervening in appointments and decisions of elected officials when the court believes uh, that they are unreasonable. Legal experts are saying that if this bill actually passes, it will remove an important check on power in Israel. Dozens of arrests have occurred in Israel. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. A flood warning remains in effect for parts of the Connecticut and Deerfield Rivers in Massachusetts. In Vermont, one of the hardest-hit communities is Ludlow, which is home to the Okemo Ski Resort. As Peter Hirschfeld reports, some town officials say the damage there is on par with what happened during Tropical Storm Irene more than a decade ago. Ludlow town manager Brendan McNamara said the rivers jumped their banks at about 2.45 Monday morning. And he said damage to the southern Vermont resort town that hosts Okemo is catastrophic. The total scope of what kind of damage has occurred in Ludlow, the onion isn't even peeled back at all right now. It is not good. McNamara says it'll be days before the town can fully assess damage from a weather event that he says is, quote, eerily similar to Tropical Storm Irene in 2011. McNamara says Ludlow will need enormous help from the state and federal government in order to repair damage to buildings and road infrastructure. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Peter Hirschfeld. State transportation officials did warn that today might be the worst day so far for traffic caused by the closure of the Sumner Tunnel, and it looks like they could be right. Backups on Route 1A to get into the Ted Williams Tunnel begin just after the Revere Beach Parkway. The Sumner Tunnel from East Boston to downtown will be closed through the end of next month for a construction project. The blue line of the T and the East Boston Ferry are both free to give commuters an alternative. Dozens of Massachusetts beaches remain closed this morning because of high levels of bacteria in the water. Fifty-three beaches are closed across the state. That is down from more than 60 beaches over the weekend. The State Department of Public Health says it closes beaches when E. coli bacteria is high for two days in a row. The list of beaches includes the Dane Street Beach in Beverly, Pierce Lake in Saugus, and Forbes Beach in Wareham. The Massachusetts Gaming Commission will soon be under new leadership. The commission has unanimously selected Todd Grossman as its interim executive director. Grossman currently serves as as the agency's general counsel. He'll take over for Karen Wells, who is stepping down at the end of the week. The time is 734. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. In our weather forecast, sunshine today, highs in the 80s. Tonight should be clear with lows around 70 degrees. Tomorrow, sunny, temperatures in the 90s. And for Thursday, a chance of showers, highs in the 80s. It's 69 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Abortion is legal up to 20 weeks of pregnancy in Iowa right now. Republicans who are in the supermajority in the state legislature want to reduce that to about six weeks, with some exceptions. So the governor, Republican Kim Reynolds, has called lawmakers back to the Capitol in Des Moines. Iowa Public Radio's Grant Gerlock will be there. So, Grant, what are Republicans looking to do? Lawmakers plan to take up a so-called fetal heartbeat bill, and that would ban abortions in Iowa after cardiac activity is detected in an embryo, which happens around six weeks. There are exceptions in the bill for rape, incest, the life of the mother, and if there are lethal abnormalities. This bill is actually a repeat for Iowa. It's nearly identical to a law that passed back in 2018, which at the time was the strictest passed in the country, except that that law never took effect. It was blocked in court, in part because Roe versus Wade was still the law of the land at that time. And then last year, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe in the Dobbs decision. So that's one reason this abortion ban is coming up again in Iowa. Another reason is that things changed at the state level, too. Just before that Dobbs decision came down, the Iowa Supreme Court overturned its own previous ruling that protected abortion rights in the state. So those two rulings cleared the way for new, stricter laws on abortion here. And the governor called this special session to basically put that 2018 law back on the books. Yeah, that law wound up uh, at the state Supreme Court. So is it possible any legislation passed today would end up right back there? That's basically what's expected to happen. If this bill passes, abortion providers in Iowa say they plan to immediately challenge it, just like they did that previous law, and they hope it's struck down too. They call this proposal a near total ban on abortion because most women don't even know they're pregnant at six weeks. At the same time, these providers are planning for what happens in their clinics if this bill passes because it would take effect immediately. Sarah Traxler is the chief medical officer of Planned Parenthood for this region. We will do our best to challenge it. We will comply while it is in effect, but we will still provide abortion care in the state of Iowa up to what is legal. So Traxler says they're preparing to advise people who are beyond six weeks of pregnancy to refer them to abortion providers in other states where they could still have the procedure. All right. So elected Republicans in Iowa are pushing for this. What about the voters there? How do they feel about abortion restrictions? Most actually support abortion rights. A statewide poll by the Des Moines Register in March found 61 percent of Iowans believe abortion should be legal in all or most cases. However, that's not reflected in the makeup of the legislature right now. 
Republicans hold majorities in both chambers and control the governor's office. And Iowa Republicans say they've been campaigning on restricting abortion, but voters put them in charge. When she announced the special session, Governor Kim Reynolds said in a statement that she was proud to sign that law in 2018, and she'll continue to fight what she called the inhumanity of abortion. So abortion rights supporters are planning to demonstrate at the Capitol, but as loud as they may be, Republicans have the votes. And based on the schedule they've laid out, they plan to pass this bill today. Iowa Public Radio's Grant Gerlach in Des Moines. Grant, thanks. Thanks, A. Since returning to power nearly two years ago, the Taliban have been pushing women and girls out of public life again. They're not allowed to study beyond sixth grade. They're banned from most jobs. They can't even visit parks. Now the Taliban say they're shutting down women's beauty salons. To tell us more, NPR's Dia Hadid is on the line. She covers Afghanistan. Dia, good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Michelle. So tell us what happened. Well, Michelle, as you noted, over the past two years, the Taliban have been gradually enforcing rules that have largely confined women and girls to their homes. But some of the luckiest women were running businesses that cater to other women. But they received a blow last week when Taliban officials confirmed rumours that they'd revoke the licences of some 3,000 beauty salons in Kabul. The thing is, a ban on salons can sound frivolous, but this is one of the few female-dominated industries in Afghanistan. And they have reliable business because they do extravagant makeovers for weddings. And it was also one of the few places where Afghan women could still congregate outside their homes. So you've been able to speak to some of the women who've been affected by this. What have they told you? Well, they're in a panic. There's dismay. Like one beauty salon owner, uh, Samia Fakiri, she was making good money for Afghanistan, about $700 a month, and she employed eight other women. And when she heard the news, she told us that she felt sick. And she says she's been crying ever since. Her workers are crying. She's thinking about smuggling her family out of Afghanistan. And she asked us why the Taliban have it in for women. And she said this. She says, death is better than this. God should just kill us all. We're alive, but we're not living. Oh, my goodness. That's, oh, dear, that's, um, that's just very disturbing. So, so these are places that women could make a decent living. They could be together and enjoy some, I don't know, some pampering, I guess you would say. Did the authorities say why they're shutting them down? Well, the spokesperson for the Ministry for the Prevention of Vice and Promotion of Virtue, it's a long name for basically a morality ministry, tweeted a video where he said they were shutting down the salons because men were being pressured into going into debt to pay for extravagant wedding makeovers. And then he said women were getting procedures that were un-Islamic, like hair weaves and eyebrow shaping. Well, but these salons aren't exactly a secret. So why, why now? Why are the Taliban going after them now? It's unclear that Taliban's decision-making is generally opaque, but it's clear they're on the defensive about this specific ban because the Ministry for the Prevention of Vice and Promotion of Virtue has been running interviews with women who support the ban, like one woman who said ladies emerged from the salons looking like cats and monkeys and said it was un-Islamic. Has there been any international reaction to this, and does that even matter? Well, yes and no. 
The UN has condemned this ban, so have Western diplomats, but they appear to have little leverage in Afghanistan. In fact, Taliban officials use a narrative of defying the West to whip up their base. That's NPR's Dia Hadid. Dia, thank you so much. You're welcome, Michelle. Here is a story to look forward to this afternoon. The marketing machine that is the upcoming Barbie movie is in overdrive in Los Angeles. So much pink already. There's even a real-life Malibu dream house available to rent. What it says about the current state of the Hollywood franchise that's later today on All Things Considered. And you can listen wherever you are, on your phone, your computer, your smart speaker, or on the radio. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up at the top of the hour on Morning Edition, protesters are back on the streets in Israel after Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu revived judicial overhaul plans. Weather forecast is calling for sunshine today. Highs in the 80s should be clear tonight with lows near 70 and sunny again tomorrow with temperatures in the low 90s. It is 69 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. bostonchildrens.org answers. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. In business news, Framingham-based Amoresco will soon begin work on four new power plant projects in California. The clean energy company says it will build battery energy storage systems to store renewable energy in an effort to avoid disruptions to California's power grid. Amoresco expects to finish the project by the end of next year. Leaders in Brockton plan to mark the completion of the Enterprise Center development today. The project is capped by the grand opening of the Empresa apartment complex, which will have more than 100 housing units. The Enterprise Center also includes retail and office space. It's located in the former headquarters of the Enterprise newspaper. The summer session of the Brimfield Antique Flea Market is underway. The expansive market includes thousands of antique vendors, and it runs through Saturday. The time is 745. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with a variety of British mysteries available for streaming, including all seasons of Luther, Father Brown, and Silent Witness. Available during Mystery Month at BritBox.com NPR. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. Every day, thousands of people are released from prison. Oftentimes, they're set up to fail. In Alabama, a group of students and professors participated in a reentry simulation hosted by the Justice Department, an effort to increase empathy for people leaving prison. From member station WBHM, here's Mary Scott Hodgen. In the real world, Trian Carmichael works at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and she's studying social work. But today, 
Carmichael is walking in the shoes of a man named Wessel. Been in prison, in federal prison for 10 years. Carmichael is one of about 100 people participating in the simulation. The group is gathered in a large gym at the university's recreation center. Do you know anything about the reentry process? No, ma'am. That's why I was like, let me see how hard it is, how difficult it is to see what they actually go through. That's the idea behind the activity. Participants take on the persona of someone leaving prison. They get a list of tasks to complete at stations around the gym, check in at the probation office, pay fines at the courthouse, visit the employment office. One station is especially popular. Excuse me, what is this line for? <laughs> State ID. You think you're going to make it? No. Absolutely not. As another participant puts it, the line for an ID is a million years long. And those who make it through the line better be prepared to pay transportation costs plus a fee. People start the game with little to no money. They scramble to get the right documents, find work, and cash a check. At one point, Trion Carmichael is told she owes $75 on an outstanding warrant. Was this unexpected? Uh, very much so. I finally found how to get some money. I was supposed to get some every week, but it is horrible out here. Horrible. Things don't get much better from there. Don't know whether or not I need to go get some food before I pass out or go get my paycheck. I didn't pay child support, I didn't pay rent. It's a predicament for lots of people leaving prison. Nationwide, some states offer more reentry services than others. In Alabama, services are extremely limited, says Jeremy Shearer. We simply just don't make use of the time that we have people incarcerated, and so they don't have a plan when they come out. Shearer is an assistant U.S. attorney in Alabama. His office is one of many across the country that organize these reentry simulations. Shearer has conducted the activity with all kinds of people, including correctional officers and judges. He says it highlights ways to improve the system. Like in Alabama, officials could better prepare people in prison with more education and job training. The best practice model in reentry is reentry begins on day one. Alabama prison officials say reentry is a priority, but in recent years, their main focus has been funding new prison construction. As the event winds down, Tim Lanier addresses the group. I want to thank y'all for making me feel good today. I like putting y'all in jail. That was good. <laughs> Lanier is one of several formerly incarcerated people helping run the simulation. He says, all fun aside, the activity is just a glimpse at how stressful reentry can be. I really like the frustration I saw on the faces of the people that saw that they couldn't get things done. You know, just imagine that. Just imagine getting out of prison after being in there over 15, 16, 18, 20 years. They give you $10 in the bus ticket to take you to come home. For participants like Trion Carmichael, just an hour of the simulation is enough. I'm tired. I'm just saying, forget it. I'll go to jail myself. She says there's got to be a better way. Because basically, you set them up for failure. They're going back to prison, and they have no help. Carmichael is finishing up her social work degree. She says in the future, she may work with formerly incarcerated people and hopefully make the process a little easier. For NPR News, I'm Mary Scott Hodgen in Birmingham. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up at 825 on Morning Edition, some lawmakers ask the FDA to investigate the energy drink Prime. It's become popular with kids, but some doctors say they're concerned about the beverage's high caffeine content. It's 10 minutes before 8. Hey, it's Abe Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? 
Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Here are some of the stories we're following on WBUR this Tuesday morning. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky is criticizing NATO over its decision to delay an agreement over whether to allow his country to join the alliance. Protesters in Israel are blocking highways during demonstrations against a new ruling that limits judicial oversight and torrential downpours have caused major flooding in parts of Vermont and New York State. You can stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. In our forecast, sunshine today, highs in the upper 80s, clear tonight, lows around 70. It is 70 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Amy Martinez. As more states legalize cannabis, many users are rediscovering it. Among them are senior citizens who are turning to marijuana to deal with the problems of aging. Some swear by its benefits, but as Jim Zaroli reports, there are some concerns about how safe it is for older users. This is our production lab and manufacturing lab. This is where we make all of our gummies right now. A few years ago, Eric Blazek gave up his law career to open this sprawling cannabis company in upstate New York. The state was getting ready to legalize cannabis and competition was fierce. So Blazek decided to focus on one segment of the market in particular. He created Senior Moments. It sells tinctures, gummies and other products aimed at senior citizens. The CBD had just been made federally legal. And so we looked through the numbers and and it looked awesome as a business. The products he sells also include THC, which is the part of cannabis that gets users high. The company has come along at a time when senior citizens are the fastest growing part of the market. At the Union Square Travel Agency in New York City, a cannabis store, about 13% of the clientele are people over 60. Quite a few of them come in, they tell stories about how they used to smoke cannabis 60 years ago, and they just, they just love it. Owner Dave Votrin says he's had customers as old as 89. He says a lot of the baby boomers he sees have come back to using cannabis now that it's legal in New York. He calls them boomerangs and they spend more money than younger people. Some just want to get high, but physical therapist Lori Zucker says a lot of her older patients use it to deal with long-standing health problems. Headaches, uh, chronic pain, things that have not healed well. And so when I'm working in that realm, it's a viable option, just the same as all the other pharmaceuticals. Among Zucker's patients is Nancy Sasso, who's 70. For years, she struggled with leg and back pain that kept her from sleeping. It was so bad she had to give up her psychotherapy practice. Now, every night before bed, she pops a gummy. It gives her a mild buzz. It's not like I can't function. It's not like I, I couldn't react to an emergency if I had one. I mean, I'm fine. It's just I do feel it a little bit and uh, get in bed, read for a while, and I'm out. 
Sasso says cannabis has made a world of difference for her. It's elevated the quality of my life tremendously, and I feel healthier because I'm not taking a lot of prescription medication to try to get a night's sleep. But there is reason for caution. A study by the University of California at San Diego this year said cannabis-related emergency room visits by the elderly have skyrocketed lately. They come in with confusion or cardiovascular problems or falls. Mark Agronin is a geriatric psychiatrist in Miami. He says there's not a lot of hard data yet about the medical impact of cannabis on elderly brains or how much is safe for them to take. My concern is that the hype has outpaced the actual data. And so it's used more widely than it should be without that scientific basis. He also worries that cannabis can interact negatively with other medicine a senior might be taking. One problem is that cannabis products today tend to be a lot stronger than the weed that baby boomers remember. So it's easy for someone returning to cannabis after many years to overdo it and end up in the emergency room. Eric Blazak of Senior Moments says users need to experiment and figure out their tolerance levels. You know, it's slow and low is a good approach to anything. The cannabis industry is moving fast, he says, but users, even those who tried it back in the day, need to take their time. For NPR News, this is Jim Zaroli. If you are planning to travel abroad this summer and need to apply for a new passport, good luck with that. Routine processing times are as long as 13 weeks. To put that in perspective, we've got fewer than 11 weeks of summer left. The U.S. State Department is getting more than 400,000 new applications a week. Clint Henderson of the Points Guy Travel website says officials blame COVID for the delays. During the pandemic, demand plummeted and a lot of the processing went away and obviously a lot of workers stayed home so they weren't processing as many passport applications and then when travel came roaring back and roaring back it did uh, they were left with being short-staffed and they just didn't have enough people to process all the applications that were coming in and and really it's at record levels so not as quick as they were like everything else in travel as they were before the pandemic the delays also apply to passport renewals They had rolled out an online renewal uh, that was working sort of hit or miss, but it had a lot of bugs. The system was crashing and stuff. So they've taken that offline, and that's supposed to come back at the end of the year. That should help. And obviously, those folks having to get in the line with the folks who need new passports is not helping the situation right now. Henderson says all this is affecting international travel. A lot of people are waking up realizing they have an expired passport or it's going to take a long time and they're having to scramble to either scrub the trips altogether or try to do an emergency passport situation, which puts further strains on the system. You can still get a passport for an emergency, like the death of an immediate relative for travel within three business days, but you will still need to call for an appointment. Barring an emergency, Henderson recommends applying for a passport as early as possible. Pay for the expedited service. It's an extra 60 bucks when you go to get the passport, but talk about being worth every penny. That certainly is it. Also pay for express shipping for your passport. Uh, Two-day shipping around $18 and totally worth it. The State Department's website acknowledges that some customers are facing extended wait times when calling the National Passport Information Center and says it's taking steps to improve the experience. I will say that we've seen some progress. I've been reporting on this problem for the past year. It looks like there's some light at the end of the tunnel. I think by the end of the year, 
They'll have processing times down, and they will also have the online renewal. You can also reach out to the office of your congressional representative for help within 14 days of your travel date. Henderson says they should have a dedicated staff member to deal with passport issues, but they're running into the same problem as others, trouble getting a hold of people. Now, Michelle, you know, uh, a few years ago, I won $12 in the California lottery. Really? And I thought if I won $12 million, I wouldn't be ready to take off because my passport wasn't up to date. Okay, well, that's a very interesting approach to uh, staying ready for stuff, but okay, it works if it works for you. So are you good to go now? Oh, I, I it'll be NPR Madagascar Bureau 100%. tomorrow. 100 If I win it. Yeah, there you okay. go. Okay, and I'll just say, if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. That's right. There you go. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Avita at ART. Don't keep your distance from the beloved Tony Award-winning musical about the life of Argentina's Eva Perón. Now through July 30th, amrep.org. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. NATO opened its summit with some momentum after Turkey withdrew objections to Sweden joining the alliance. It's Tuesday, July 11th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, the protests in Israel over judicial overhaul plans. Also, the significance of the Kremlin sharing information about Russian President Putin's meeting with the Wagner rebellion leader. Wagner commanders explained why they had done what they'd done, but assured the Kremlin leader they remained loyal and were ready to continue fighting for Russia. And the U.S. has destroyed its last chemical weapons warhead from a stockpile that dated back to World War I. Also, the New York Times kills its sports department. Plus, the FDA may investigate an energy drink popular with kids. Forecast says sunny today. Highs in the 80s. It's 8.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The NATO summit is opening in Lithuania and may soon welcome a new member. NPR's Asma Khalid reports Turkey is agreeing to back Sweden's bid to join NATO. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan told reporters the U.S. had significant engagement in bringing this deal about and reiterated that NATO remains united. Vladimir Putin has been counting on the West to crack, NATO to crack, uh, the transatlantic alliance to crack. He has been disappointed at every turn. Vilnius will very much disappoint him. In addition to the question of Sweden's membership, another big issue at this NATO summit is Ukraine's bid to join the alliance. Biden has said Ukraine is not ready to join, but the White House says allies could find some agreement on a pathway toward future membership, though it has not articulated a timeline. Biden is slated to meet with Ukraine's president tomorrow. 
Asma Khalid, NPR News, Vilnius. Heavy rain is still pouring on New England and Vermont is seeing catastrophic flooding. Significant damage is reported. There have been numerous water rescues. Mike Cannon directs Vermont's urban search and rescue team. We have not been able to reach all of our residents. Um, Vermont's a, a mountainous uh, state. The Green Mountains run north to south. Our uh, infrastructure um, transportation lines run over the mountains. All those um, transportation lines um, for two-thirds of the state are cut off right now, so our teams have to uh, transverse those mountain ranges. Flooding has also crashed into Connecticut, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and New York. A New York woman drowned this week in flash flooding. A federal appeals court in Virginia has blocked construction of the Mountain Valley Pipeline through the Jefferson National Forest. Construction had restarted because it was green-lighted in the same law that increased the nation's debt ceiling. NPR's Dave Mistich has more. The Fiscal Responsibility Act, which became law last month, expedited permitting of the 300-plus Mountain Valley Pipeline and redirected all court challenges to the D.C.-based Circuit Court of Appeals. In a case brought by the Wilderness Society, the group argues that including the pipeline provision is unconstitutional and that it gave Congress power over the courts. The company behind the pipeline says the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals had no jurisdiction as a result of the new law. But a three-judge panel has ordered pipeline developers not to resume construction through three and a half miles of the Jefferson National Forest, while some court challenges remain unresolved. Dave Mistich, NPR News. Medical officials in Europe are investigating the diabetes drug Ozempic, increasingly used as a weight loss medication. European regulators are checking reports that people who take Ozempic or drugs with a similar ingredient have reported thoughts of suicide or self-harm. Thoughts of suicide are not currently listed as a side effect on Ozempic labels in Europe or in the United States. You're listening to NPR News. A new report has revealed the extent of war crimes against largely non-Arab ethnic groups in the Darfur region of Sudan. The conflict between the Sudanese army and a powerful paramilitary group erupted in April. The crimes, revealed by Human Rights Watch, echo the atrocities of the Darfur War 20 years ago. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu reports that saw widespread ethnic cleansing. In one case in May, 28 ethnic Basalit people in the town of Mystere were killed. Fighters from the Rapid Support Forces, or RSF, who are at war with Sudan's army, pursued civilians as they hid in the neighborhood, in their homes, and even in a school, where according to eyewitnesses, gunmen fired at men, women and children. Men and boys in the town were especially targeted by the RSF and allied militia who burnt Mystery to the ground. The conflict in Sudan has led to levels of violence and ethnic violence in Darfur not seen in decades, and more than 200,000 people have fled to neighboring Chad, according to the UN. Human Rights Watch is calling for international investigations and humanitarian access. Emmanuel Akinwotu, NPR News, Lagos. Former President Donald Trump is asking a federal judge to delay his trial on alleged mishandling of classified documents. His lawyer is citing Trump's presidential candidacy and says these are extraordinary circumstances. One test will be how to select a jury during the campaign. Prosecutors allege Trump conspired to obstruct their probe of the case. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. The Registry of Motor Vehicles says it's seen a jump in the number of people applying for learner's permits. That's after a law went into effect this month that allows people to get driver's licenses regardless of their immigration status. And as WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez reports, a local nonprofit that helps immigrant communities has been swamped by clients seeking driver's licenses. The Framingham-based Brazilian American Center has been helping people hoping to get a license, get their paperwork in order, and make appointments. Executive Director Liliani Costa says they have been busy. The telephone, they ring all the time. The people are there all the time. Costa says Brace was contacted by nearly 300 people last week, even though their office was open for only two days. Officials at the Registry for Motor Vehicles say they've prepared for the influx of new applicants. They've set up a waiting list where people are asked to choose three RMV locations they're able to get to. The RMV estimates the first six months under the new law will be the busiest. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. Boston is expanding a program that provides free, healthy meals across the city. More than 100 Boston Summer Eats sites will be open this summer. 22 farmers markets will also participate. The sites will be open to those 18 and under. City officials say the goal of the program is to allow people who don't qualify for state or federal assistance to access healthy food. A former correctional officer at the Devons Federal Prison Medical Center will spend a year behind bars. Seth Borze was sentenced yesterday for violating the civil rights of a mentally ill incarcerated man in 2019. Prosecutors say Borze struck the inmate with a protective shield, causing serious head injuries. Borze was also sentenced to two years supervised release after his time in prison. A new exhibit at the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library in Dorchester is focusing on how World War II affected JFK and his contemporaries. It's called Service and Sacrifice, World War II, A Shared Experience. Janice Hudson is the exhibit curator. The main theme of the exhibit derives from John F. Kennedy's statement that World War II was his generation's defining experience. Later this month, the museum will add a photo compilation of World War II veterans from New England families, and the exhibit will be open through next March. The time is eight minutes past eight. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. In our forecast, sunshine today. Highs in the upper 80s. Clear tonight with lows around 70. Sunny tomorrow. Temperatures in the low 90s. And clouds with a chance of showers on Thursday. Highs in the 80s. It's 71 degrees in Boston. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. In a few minutes, we're going to take a look at some major changes at the New York Times. But first, Israel's controversial judicial overhaul plans are back. And so are anti-government street protests. (laughs) 
If all this sounds like deja vu, it is. Earlier this year, street protests forced Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to freeze his plans to weaken the powers of Israel's judiciary, but now those plans are out of deep freeze. Last night, Netanyahu's far-right coalition gave preliminary approval in parliament to one part of that plan. NPR's Daniel Estrin is actually at a protest in Tel Aviv now, and he's with us from there. Daniel, hello. Hi, Michelle. So describe the scene for us. This is a re-energized nationwide non-violent protest movement uh, that we're seeing now. Protesters are blocking major highways throughout the country. Police dispersed protesters with a water cannon in one place. I'm at a main downtown intersection in Tel Aviv. I saw police on horseback charging into hundreds of protesters in the street. Um, I met one protester uh, who had her foot trampled on by a police horse, more dinar. And I asked her what she was doing here. Trying to protect our country from dictatorship because we believe in democracy and we need the help of the U.S. to protect us and not give all the all the Netanyahu and his friends to overcome and control our country in unlegal ways. Now, this focus on the U.S. is actually a new tactic among the protesters. There is a big protest planned today outside a U.S. embassy building in Tel Aviv. And the idea is to keep the pressure on the Biden administration. President Biden has not invited Prime Minister Netanyahu to the White House yet. That is highly unusual. Uh, Biden told CNN recently that Netanyahu's cabinet includes some of the most extreme members. The U.S. ambassador to Israel told The Wall Street Journal in an interview published yesterday that he warned Israel against going off the rails with uh, this judicial overhaul. So, Daniel, could you just remind us of what Netanyahu and his supporters are trying to do and why people are so outraged about it? Well, this is Israel's most right-wing government in history. It thinks the judiciary in the country is just too liberal, and, and it wants to limit the judiciary's powers. Now, protesters say this is actually a threat to Israel's democratic separation of powers. Uh, now, Netanyahu actually paused this overhaul plan because of massive protests earlier this year, and there were talks with the opposition, but those talks have now failed, and so Netanyahu is rebooting his plan. And last night, parliament gave initial approval to a major change in how courts rule. Um, this change would block the court from intervening in appointments and decisions of elected officials when the court believes uh, that they are unreasonable. Legal experts are saying that if this bill actually passes, it will remove an important check on power in Israel. So just can you just tell us briefly where Israel is heading with all of this? Well, Israel's coalition wants to pass this law by the end of the month. Um, that could lead to harsh crackdowns on the anti-government protesters in the streets. Israel's central bank governor says that all the uncertainty around the judicial overhaul is, is hurting the economy bad. It's weakened Israel's currency by almost 10 percent since the beginning of the year. Food and gas prices are rising. And the problem for Netanyahu is that he cannot remain in power without the support of his far-right partners. The far-right was demanding a major military offensive in the West Bank, and they they saw that last week. So now the right is demanding these changes to the courts. And the question is, can this re-energized protest movement actually force Netanyahu to back off? That is NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Daniel, thank you. You're welcome. In a sudden reversal at the NATO summit, Turkey has agreed to back Sweden's bid to join the alliance. The decision has to be ratified at the Turkish parliament, but it is seen as a major step forward after Ankara spent months blocking Sweden's application. Another issue that NATO's leadership hopes to resolve at the summit is the budget. In 2014, the Allies had pledged to increase their minimum defense spending to 2% of each country's national GDP. Those goals have not been met. Joining me to add some insight into all this is Daniel Feda. He is a public policy expert and a former senior defense official for Europe and NATO. We reached him at the summit in Lithuania. Now, Mr. Feda, thanks so much for joining us. 
Good morning. So we've been reporting on Turkey's opposition to letting Sweden join for more than a year now. Just yesterday, Turkish President Erdogan had demanded EU membership for Turkey in exchange for Sweden's admission to NATO. So what do you think prompted Turkey to change positions? It seems rather abrupt. Uh, it is abrupt, but it's also a part of a pattern. Uh, if you look at the past few summits, uh, President Erdogan has been a holdout for many things, and he uses this uh, as a negotiating tactic. I think uh, having a path for EU membership has been important uh, for him, and there really hasn't been a lot of traction within recent years. So I think, you know, if you are him, uh, you leverage this appropriately uh, to try to get concessions uh, that matter to him, because Sweden obviously matters to the rest of the alliance, including Turkey. So what role do you think the U.S. played in getting Turkey and Sweden to agree? I'm just noting that the Swedish prime minister was recently in Washington meeting with President Biden before he left for the summit. Did the U.S. play some role here? With regard to the EU, I'm not sure. But I do believe what we're going to hear, and you can see the White House statement that came out yesterday, which is lacking details, is there was a role that the, the White House played uh, with President Erdogan. President Erdogan has wanted more advanced F-16 fighter jets. He, ha he was in the F-35 program. He's not because of some decisions to buy Russian equipment. So I believe, and what we're hearing here on the ground, is that one of the things that helped put this over the edge was the U.S. agreeing to sell advanced fighter craft to Turkey. I want to mention that Finland was also recently admitted to the alliance. What does adding two Nordic countries strategically add for the NATO alliance? Great question. Both companies, uh, both countries, sorry, bring a lot of capability. Uh, both were neutral countries in many ways, and both had to provide for their own defense. The Finns have uh, the Finns have a long history with Russia, and so they bring a lot of immediate capability and an understanding of how Russia uh, operates. And the Swedes bring a lot of naval power into this greater Nordic Baltic area. So it really does help that part of Europe become more secure. I want to ask about the budget, another uh, issue that NATO is hoping to resolve. There are reports that NATO allies have agreed to raise military spending to at least 2 percent for each country. But, you know, it's not a secret that the war in Ukraine has put a strain on many European economies and that increasing the defense budget could add additional strains. What are you hearing about this at the summit? Well, your timing couldn't be better. In less than one hour, uh, all the presidents and prime ministers will meet in what's called the North Atlantic Council session, and they will start to unveil all the, uh, we can call them deliverables, but all the announcements. One of the major announcements, and it might well, if it's not Ukraine first, it'll be this, is that all nations have agreed now to uh, spend 2% of GDP as the minimum, so as the floor. Ten years or nine years ago at the Wales summit in the UK, in the UK allies agreed to the goal should be 2 percent. Now here you're going to see that it's going to be the floor. So no less than 2 percent. And all 31 allies will agree to that. Does this represent a compromise of sorts or does this something that you really feel that there's agreement on? I think it's something that there is real agreement on. Earlier today, a bunch of the prime ministers were here, and the prime minister of Estonia offered a couple interesting statistics, of one of which I'll mention. She said in 1988, so a year to two years before the wall fell down, allies were spending 2% because there was a threat. Today, we see only 11%, 11 members spend 2%. I think what you're seeing is a recognition of the threat, and that's what's going to drive us to all get to 2%. That's Daniel Feda. Daniel, thanks so much for sharing this expertise with us. Great. Thanks, Michelle.
A sign of the times at the New York Times. Yesterday, its leaders announced the newspaper was disbanding its legendary sports desk. This is Juliet McCurr, who has covered sports for the Times for almost 20 years. The New York Times sports section is basically the history book of sports. As NPR's David Folkenflik reports, the paper will rely on sports coverage from The Athletic, a website the Times bought early last year for more than half a billion dollars. On Monday morning, New York Times' top editors told their sports reporters that they'd all keep their jobs in other parts of the paper. Again, Juliet McCurr. And many of us have dreamed our whole lives to work for the New York Times sports section and to see it just disappear in, in a matter of minutes. It's, it's heartbreaking and my colleagues are sad and feel betrayed and angry. In recent years, fierce competition emerged from ESPN and other sports channels and social media platforms. The Times shifted away from game stories to eliminate broader trends in the game, conduct investigations, and do enterprise work. That's what made us different at the New York Times sports section is that we didn't cover the X's and O's that somebody who didn't care about sports would ever read. We wrote for everyone, and that's that's sad that that's that's going away. According to several people present, New York Times executive editor Joe Kahn praised the section at that contentious meeting on Monday and told staffers the quality of their work had nothing to do with the decision. The Times promised to continue enterprise reporting about sports, but there are questions about how the two sides will be integrated. The Athletic is not represented by the Times' newsroom union, and it operates under separate codes of ethics and reporting standards. The Athletic covers most major teams intently, credibly, largely from an obsessive fan perspective. New York Times company executives have bragged about the site's growth, saying it has more than doubled its subscriber base in the past year, though it remains in the red. You don't spend that much money for an outlet and an organization that's focused on sports so broadly and not integrate them into your operations at some point down the road. Christopher Clary covered tennis and other sports for the New York Times for three decades. He left the paper last month. It seems symbolic that New York Times sports, as we've known it, with its august Sports of the Times columnists and its, uh, its very global big picture approach to sports and is essentially being supplanted by, by The Athletic. The New York Times is not the only major outlet retooling. The Los Angeles Times announced Sunday it would no longer cover each game for the city's big sports teams. It's shifting deadlines hours earlier to mid-afternoon and adopting a more magazine-like approach, much like The New York Times before it. David Folkenflik, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for starting your day with us here at WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes on Morning Edition, the U.S. has destroyed its last chemical weapons from a stockpile that dated back to World War I. The time is 21 minutes past 8. Black representation in Major League Baseball is at an all-time low. The MLB's latest effort to fix that? a showcase for players from historically black colleges. I never imagined playing on a big league field with big league Hall of Famers in the dugout. 12, Mike I'm Juana Summers. 
the HBCU Swingman Classic on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. In our forecast, sunshine today. Highs in the upper 80s, clear tonight with lows around 70 degrees. Sunny tomorrow, temperatures in the low 90s. It is 71 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. From Carla Itzkovich, whose gift in memory of Moises Itzkovich, founder of the Moises Itzkovich Foundation, helps provide public radio news and information to communities around the world. From Charles Schwab, dedicated to serving clients with 24-7 live support. The people at Schwab are committed to helping clients on their investing journey. Learn more at schwab.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Pediatricians and other health experts say the FDA could do more to regulate caffeinated energy drinks and to make parents aware of the potential risks. The concern comes as Senator Chuck Schumer of New York, who's also the leader of the Senate Democratic majority, has asked the agency to investigate what he calls an eye-popping amount of caffeine in one brand that's become popular with kids. NPR's Allison Aubrey has this report. Teenagers may be a lot more caffeinated than their parents realize. Senator Schumer says one brand of energy drink called Prime has become a status symbol promoted by social media influencers. It contains more caffeine than Red Bull. But unlike Red Bull, it is specifically targeted. The advertising campaign is targeted at kids under 18. Schumer has asked the FDA to investigate both the marketing and the caffeine content, pointing to potential health risks. And Dr. Holly Benjamin, a pediatrician at the University of Chicago, says one of the problems with energy drinks is that it's hard to know how much caffeine and other stimulants they contain. I do think parents are unaware of the actual caffeine content or that they think that small amounts of caffeine are fine. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that kids under the age of 12 consume no caffeinated beverages, and over 12, a general guideline is a maximum of about 100 milligrams a day, the amount found in nearly three cans of Coke. But the energy drink Prime has double that amount, about 200 milligrams in a 12-ounce serving, which is a little less than a Starbucks coffee of the same size. For you and me and the average parent or college-age kid out there, I think that's you know, perfectly normal and reasonable. But for kids and teens not acclimated, that amount of caffeine can lead to unexpected side effects beyond just that feeling of a pick-me-up. When it crosses over into jitteriness, nervousness, anxiety, heart beating too fast, even headaches, that can start to be a more concern. Food and beverage manufacturers do list caffeine on ingredient labels, but Aviva Musicus of the Center for Science and the Public Interest says they don't have to say how much caffeine a drink contains. So it has to be in the ingredients list if it is an ingredient, but they're not legally required to put the total content of caffeine on the package. 
There's long been efforts to change this, going back to at least 2011, when researchers identified more than 20,000 ER visits related to energy drinks. Now, pediatricians say social media fuels interest and demand, and many teenagers have little awareness of the risks. Allison Aubrey, NPR News. I want to mention here that Prime Energy Drink is labeled as, quote, not recommended for children under 18, unquote. In a statement, a company spokesperson says the caffeine in it is, quote, unquote, comparable to other energy drinks and that Prime welcomes discussions with the FDA on industry changes the agency might feel are, quote, necessary in order to protect consumers, unquote. Even before the Supreme Court ruled against affirmative action in higher education, lawmakers in some states were trying to dismantle what's known as DEI. Colleges and universities have adopted diversity, equity, and inclusion programs as a way to recruit and retain a more diverse student body. But many lawmakers, mostly Republicans in states like Texas and Florida, oppose them. Adrian Liu reports for the Chronicle of Higher Education, which has been tracking these legislative efforts. Adrian, what kinds of uh, DEI policies are lawmakers targeting? Yeah, so diversity, equity, and inclusion refers broadly to efforts by colleges and universities to recruit and retain underrepresented students. Um, We've been tracking bills in four specific categories. These bills would prohibit the use of diversity statements in hiring, which are written statements where applicants can explain how they can contribute to a university's diversity goals. Um, They would ban mandatory diversity training, prohibit the use of identity characteristics in hiring and or admission, and they would ban diversity, equity, and inclusion offices, staff, or work. How far do the measures go in in these states, like Florida and Texas? Um, The bills vary across the country. The bills in Texas and Florida are um, among the more far-reaching. And um, across the country, we found 40 bills in 22 states that restrict diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, And so far, 40 of the the 40 bills, seven have become law, and 28 have failed somewhere along the way. And what do the lawmakers in these states, what do they say about why they want to neutralize DEI? Lawmakers, uh, mostly Republicans, say that the DEI bureaucracy has gone too far. They say that it's costly for taxpayers, it's ineffective, and it infringes on academic freedom, and that it goes against the American ideal of treating people as individuals. Some politicians argue that through DEI work, colleges are trying to indoctrinate students with liberal or woke ideology. And what do the universities say to refute those arguments? Universities argue that DEI efforts are needed to help maintain diversity on college campuses for the benefit of all students and to help underrepresented students of color who graduate at lower rates than white students. Um, Some universities also point out that DEI efforts are intended to help not only students of color, but all kinds of students who might need additional support and resources to succeed in college. These include um, first-generation college students, students with disabilities, veterans, and women in STEM fields, for example. So to ban DEI efforts could really affect many different kinds of students. And if these DEI measures are indeed banned or maybe banned, what do colleges and universities say they'll have to do? I know that there's a lot of departments that are at risk of maybe shutting down, which means jobs are in peril. Yeah, it's interesting. Many college professors and staff have said that they are really disappointed that their campus leaders have not been more vocal about the potential impact of anti-DEI legislation. So although there are a few exceptions, many college leaders have been pretty quiet about what could happen if DEI efforts are banned. Um, But we do know that 
after the Supreme Court ruling against race-conscious admissions recently, many college leaders came out and said that while they will comply with the law, they remain committed to having a diverse student body and to helping all students to succeed in college. Um, but in states that have passed laws to restrict DEI, that work could become a lot more difficult. Adrian Liu reports for the Chronicle of Higher Education. Thanks a lot. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Today's top stories are getting underway in just about a minute or so. And in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we talk about the dozen homes in Los Angeles County that were destroyed in a landslide yesterday. It's 8.30. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden is in Lithuania, where NATO is holding its latest summit. The focus is on the war in Ukraine. The talks come a day after Turkey's president dropped his objections to Sweden's bid to join the alliance, three months after Finland became a member. The two countries applied for NATO membership after Russia invaded Ukraine. As for Ukraine's repeated calls for an invitation from NATO, now is not the time, says President Biden's national security adviser, Jake Sullivan. As President Biden noted, bringing Ukraine into the alliance now here in Vilnius would bring NATO into war with Russia. Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is expected at the talks in Vilnius. Heavy rains continue moving through northern New York and Vermont, where there's flooding over a wide area. Many roads are closed in Vermont because of high water, and dozens of water rescues have occurred. Crews from as far away as Michigan and North Carolina are helping local authorities. Vermont Public's Liam Elder Connors has gotten a look at some of the high water. A big concern is that things are potentially going to get worse. Several major rivers were expected to crest overnight and early this morning, and officials are monitoring several dams that might overflow, including one near Vermont's capital, Montpelier. This is NPR News from Washington. Crews in the western U.S. continue battling wildfires. Large fires are burning in more than a half dozen states, including California, Arizona, and New Mexico. In central Washington, authorities ordered evacuations yesterday west of Quincy as a new wildfire broke out there. Another afternoon of extreme heat is expected today in parts of Southern California, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, much of Texas, and South Florida. A community college in Idaho will keep its accreditation after the ouster of its president and infighting among the school's board of trustees. Lauren Patterson with Northwest Public Broadcasting has more. North Idaho College has a year to resolve issues outlined by the Northwest Commission on Colleges and Universities. They want to see better financial transparency and ethical conduct from the college. Board of trustee members have previously made claims about educators pushing a liberal agenda. But North Idaho College President Nick Swain says keeping the college open is not a game of politics. It's not conservative versus liberal or anything like that. It's just we provide a necessary and important service to the community and to our students. Swain says consultants have been hired to assist with a strategic plan and meeting the new requirements. For NPR News, I'm Lauren Patterson in North Idaho.
Dow futures are up 102 points. I'm Dave Mattingly in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. We have more now on that unprecedented flooding in northern New England. A rescue team from Massachusetts is in Vermont to help. The team arrived yesterday. And as Abigail Giles reports, some scientists say they're concerned that flooding like this may become common in New England because of climate change. Vermont gets on average six more inches of rain every year than it did at the start of the 20th century. And heavy rain in the Northeast increased by 55 percent between 1958 and 2016. That's according to the most recent National Climate Assessment. Jillian Galford is the director of Vermont's Climate Assessment. Globally, these big precipitation events are becoming more likely, and certainly that's the case in Vermont, where we have seen an increase in these types of storms over time. Galford says many Vermont communities hit hard during Tropical Storm Irene are seeing flooding again. She says it will be important for Vermont to find ways to help those communities adapt. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Abigail Childs. Boston plans to give tax cuts to developers who convert unused office spaces into residential buildings. Officials say the cuts are meant to offset the costs it takes to convert office space to residential use. The city plans to start taking applications for developments in the fall. Projects are expected to start in October of 2025. It's a rough morning on the roads for people dealing with the closure of the Sumner Tunnel. That link from East Boston to downtown will be closed through the end of August. Right now, delays getting to the Ted Williams Tunnel begin at Revere Beach Parkway. Also, Route 1 is slow from Route 60 to the Tobin Bridge. The Blue Line of the T and the East Boston Ferry are both free to commuters. Learn more about how to get around the closure at WBUR.org. The time is 8.35. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity, because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. In our forecast, sunny today. Highs in the upper 80s. Tonight should be clear with lows near 70 degrees. Sunshine tomorrow. Temperatures getting into the low 90s tomorrow. And for Thursday, a chance of showers. Highs in the 80s. It is 71 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches. With catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. We're still trying to understand what, if anything, has resulted from that aborted revolt in Russia a couple of weeks ago. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov revealed to reporters yesterday that President Putin met with the leader of that revolt, Evgeny Prigozhin, along with three dozen of his mercenary commanders just days after the failed uprising. The three-hour meeting raises all kinds of questions about what is going on between the two men 
government and the institutions they control. To try to get some insight into this, we called Nina Khrushcheva. She is a professor of international affairs at the New School in New York City, and she's also the great-granddaughter of former Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev, and she's on the line with us from Moscow. Professor Khrushcheva, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Good morning. Good. Why, why do you think the Kremlin chose to reveal this meeting between Putin and Prigozhin now? I think they wouldn't want to. I, they probably didn't plan to, but because but there's so much leakage going on. It has been information about that. So they thought that sort of incoherent message by Peskov would stem the leaking and then people wouldn't ask for the questions. Of course, we do ask for the questions, but in Russia, very few people, in fact, ask them publicly because they don't know how the state would uh, would uh, um, would respond to that. Hmm. I'm going to ask you more about that later, but I did want to ask, what, what do you think their meeting so soon after the mutiny tells us about what, what is going on between these men? Well, we know that uh, Prigozhin has been threatening his enemies with a sledgehammer all the time. We also know that Putin is not a forgiving type. So my feeling was when Putin pardoned the Wagner group, uh, with various um, uh, cases or various cases of it. Uh, Prigozhin was a dead man walking. But I think the meeting really suggests to, it's to suggest to Putin that Prigozhin is not his enemy. And I'm very curious as to find out what kind of, uh, the amount of mea culpa that Prigozhin was doing and also what kind of extra services, because he know we know he was Putin's chef, he was Putin's military man and so on. Uh, what kind of extra services uh, Prigozhin, uh, Prigozhin promised to Putin? I think it was a probably a plea for him to stay alive. But, well, exactly to that point. I mean, it's it's not it's it's not exactly a secret that people who've run afoul of Putin have met, you know, some very unpleasant ends. And I think a lot of people are wondering why is it that Prigozhin has so far been spared this. Well, Prigozhin actually, his march to, on Moscow was, uh, he was very adamant that it was not against Putin. It was actually against the uh, the military commanders that uh, are not doing um, the job that they should be doing. And he was at, he was very, very adamant about this. I mean, Putin, of course, took it personally. He spoke twice about it. We know that he thinks it's a treason. But now with the war in Ukraine essentially stalling, he does need... Uh, to have some sort of pacifying um, efforts and peace and quiet. And so that exactly why I think he pardoned Prigozhin. I don't really believe that Putin is ever capable of forgiving him. Well, the, remember the spokesman said during the meeting that Putin discussed, quote unquote, new employment options for Prigozhin's Wagner group. What do you think that means? Well, and he already, Putin himself already said that they go to Belarus, so they may be able to do some work there. They've also been talked that they continue to service Africa they have they uh, as they did before and maybe continue to be in Syria. We also know that some of their property, some of Prigozhin's property was returned, which is kind of almost unheard of. So he had a mutiny and suddenly all his money is, is, is back at him. So I think that's what I'm, I'm looking at is what kind of services Prigozhin offered to Putin, extra services. Before we let you go as briefly as you can, are people talking about this, about this in, in Moscow? All the time. I mean, in, in absolute numbers, but not publicly. Privately, a lot. Nina Khrushcheva, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you.
The U.S. has destroyed its last chemical weapon. It's been decades in the making. From member station WEKU in Richmond, Kentucky, Stu Johnson reports on what it took to get rid of 500 tons of nerve and mustard agent that had been stored at the Bluegrass Army Depot. It was a nerve agent rocket that was the last to be neutralized, says Candace Coyle as she thanked workers at the plant she supervises. The amount of work that they've done could not even be gathered in one moment. I think most of us even woke up this morning thinking, what have we accomplished? The momentous event happened Friday and fulfills an international treaty signed by many countries in the 90s. For many central Kentuckians, it goes back to 1984. That's when Army officials proposed just burning tons of mustard and nerve munitions, some of it dating back to World War I. The public pushback was quick and firm and successful, led in part by Craig Williams, director of the Kentucky Environmental Foundation. We had a very diverse group of people in this dialogue, and the atmosphere at first was somewhat tense, but as we had meeting after meeting after meeting, people began to work together. In the end, neutralization rather than incineration was the chosen method. So it took decades for the weapons to actually be destroyed. In fact, that didn't start until 2019. The delays were due in part because money was needed to build a 16-acre plant to dismantle the rockets and projectiles. Coyle says the planning paid off. We were very safe during this entire thing. We've been very diligent with making sure people are focused on safety and making that our priority. With the milestone of the last rocket, the 1,500 people who work at the plant are not finished with the job, says Ron Hank, a project manager for the contractor, Bechtel Parsons. Sports analogy, it's, it's like you had a really good season and you kind of hate to see it end because performance was really good, had a good team on the field. But then you recognize there's another season coming behind it. We still have a lot of flushing. We have agent batches to run. The residual of these chemical agents in the warheads still needs to be dealt with, which could take a year or so. But the 1997 International Treaty Agreement calling for the elimination of chemical weapons is finally fulfilled, says Paul Walker with the Arms Control Association. I think it's an extraordinary period of destroying every lost weapon in a whole category of weapons of mass destruction. The total cost for the U.S. to comply with the Chemical Weapons Convention is more than $40 billion. But some countries didn't sign the treaty. Walker says North Korea, for one, still has chemical weapons. However, he doesn't see the countries who have signed on to dramatically change course. I'm not worried about building a big stockpile that could be suddenly sprung on somebody, because that can be inspected and verified by satellite and the like. Over the years, there were eight chemical weapons stockpiles eliminated across the country. In late June, a plant in Pueblo, Colorado finished its mission, and the Bluegrass Army Depot is planning an official celebration later this year. For NPR News, I'm Stu Johnson in Richmond, Kentucky. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 10 minutes on the Marketplace Morning Report, after several bank failures this year, the U.S. Central Bank could impose new capital requirements for banks. 
Our weather forecast, sunshine today. Temperatures in the upper 80s. Tonight will be clear with lows around 70 degrees. Tomorrow, sunny and warm with highs in the low 90s. And for Thursday, clouds with a chance of showers and temperatures in the 80s. It is 72 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. In business news, Cambridge-based Nanobiotics is partnering with Johnson & Johnson for a licensing deal worth $2 billion. Under the deal, Nanobiotics will help the pharmaceutical giant develop a new drug to treat head and neck cancer. A nonprofit plans to buy 20 newspapers in Maine. Under the deal, the National Trust for Local News will acquire papers including the Portland Press-Herald, the Sun Journal in Lewiston, and the Kennebec Journal in Augusta. The terms of the deal have not been made public. It is expected to close later this month. There's there's now another place to play pickleball in Boston. Harpoon Brewery and Hub Sports Boston have teamed up to open the Pickleball Social Club in the seaport. The space features four pickleball courts as well as other games like shuffleboard and cornhole. The time is 8.45. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. About a dozen homes near the Los Angeles County coast are being torn apart as they slip down a canyon in a slow-motion landslide. One resident says he had just a few minutes to evacuate. I had to jam a, like a lifetime of memory into two suitcases. It's not a matter of if the homes will fall, but how far. The ground under these hilltop homes in Rolling Hills Estates started moving over the weekend. The cause of the landslide still under investigation. Joining us now is L.A. Times reporter Grace Tui, who's covering the story and has been out to the site. Uh, Grace, can you start by just describing what the scene looks like there? Yeah, so there are 12 homes there that have been evacuated, and they sit atop of this canyon in Rolling Hills Estates. And and really, it's it's shocking to see just how quickly these homes have fallen. You know, they used to sit right along the road there, um, but now when you look out along the road, a lot of them, you only see their roof. Uh, you see massive cracks in these homes that are exposing pipes and beams. Uh, garage doors have been flattened, uh, and a lot of the roofs have collapsed. And what's scary is that the ground is still moving, officials say. So even neighbors who maybe haven't lost their homes are worried about how much more damage still could come. Yeah, and this is a pricey neighborhood, uh, Rolling Hills Estates. So we're talking millions and millions of dollars in damage. Uh, Any word on the potential cause for the landslide? Yeah, so we have no confirmed cause yet. As as I said, it's still moving. uh, So that's still something that they're kind of waiting to settle to really get that investigation going. There is some speculation um, uh, about what might have caused this. Uh, Some city officials have said it could have been from, you know, these really wet winter storms that we had and and kind of build up uh, groundwater that might have destabilized the slope. but, But we're not sure yet. So no one can really get in then, as you said, because it might still move. So no one can really stand there and kind of figure out what happened. Exactly. So they're kind of waiting right now. They're in this waiting game trying to uh, make sure that uh, the ground actually stops moving before the geologist or the soil experts can get in there to actually uh, try and figure out what might have caused this and and how to stop it. Now, you've been talking to some of the people who have lost their homes. Uh, What are they telling you? 
Yeah, so it's been an emotional, you know, few days for them. This really started on Saturday. You know, some some people are, are trying to keep it in perspective, and they're really grateful they got out because this did happen so so quickly. And something to note is, you know, no one has been injured. Everyone did get out safe at this point. Um, but a lot of people are really devastated. Uh, you know, they're seeing their homes kind of slide down this canyon wall that they've looked out on for so long. I talked to one man, his name is Weber Hahn, and, and he and his family have lived there for 10 years, and, and now his... His home is really gone, and, and he wants to know what happened. I'm feeling sad and confused and, and angry, angry. <laughs> angry that no one had told us earlier about this. This is pretty significant size of movement, and someone should have known about this. Grace, what can you tell us about the history of landslides in this area? Is this something new, or is this something that has been a threat or a danger for these uh, people for, for a while now? Yeah, so this specific area, we're not sure exactly, you know, if this was necessarily prone to landfalls, but the whole peninsula, this Palos Verdes Peninsula, is definitely somewhere that has had a lot of landslides. Uh, there was a big landslide in this actual city in the late 90s, and, and there's a nearby neighborhood that's been battling this slowly shifting landslide uh, since the 1950s. So it's, it's an ongoing issue for this whole region. LA Times reporter Grace Tui. Grace, thank you very much. Thank you. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up at the top of the hour, it's the BBC News Hour. On the show today, they'll have a rare inside look at what it's like for North Koreans who defect to South Korea. It's 10 minutes before 9. The Sumner Tunnel is closed through the end of August. So if you're trying to get from East Boston or Logan Airport to downtown, state officials say please don't drive. The fastest, cheapest, and most reliable way in and out of Boston during this time period is going to, without a doubt, be public transportation. We are providing free and discounted Blue Line, commuter rail, bus, and ferry service. For tips on how to get around the summer Sumner shutdown, visit WBUR.org and stay tuned to WBUR for updates. Here's a look at some of the stories WBUR is following this Tuesday morning. Historic flooding has forced the evacuation of Mount Pelier, Vermont, and the floodwaters may not have crested yet. Lawmakers in Iowa will meet today for a special session in an effort to restrict abortion access from 20 weeks to six weeks of pregnancy. And ahead of the NATO summit in Lithuania, Turkey has lifted its block on Sweden, joining the alliance. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, providing wholesale and retail fuel products located in more than 60 communities in and around Greater Boston. ALPrime.com. In our forecast, sunshine today, highs in the upper 80s, clear skies tonight with lows around 70 degrees, sunny tomorrow, temperatures in the 90s. It is 72 degrees in Boston. You go to live theater much over this last year? Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Indeed, a hiring solution that helps businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com hire. 
I'm David Brancaccio in New York. We're leading with a business of the arts story. Many regional venues for live theater are in financial crisis. Audiences are not back to pre-pandemic levels. And the government aid which helped theaters survive COVID shocks is drying up. Theaters are closing. Marketplace's Nova Safo reports. Regional theaters are facing an uncertain future. Post-pandemic, they're finding audiences are less drawn to the types of works regional theaters specialize in. And that's left companies such as the highly regarded Steppenwolf in Chicago staring down a fiscal hole. Steppenwolf, like many of our peers across the country, is known for bold, innovative, thought-provoking work. Brooke Flanagan is executive director of the company. And that work right now is not fitting in the Venn diagram of commercial viability. Flanagan says post-COVID audiences are more interested in lighter fare and familiar works, historically a pattern similar to one seen after a period of war. For Steppenwolf, which is focused on new plays, that's meant the number of subscribers has shrunk 50 percent compared to 2019. People are looking for escapism. They're looking for entertainment. They're looking for shows that they know are going to be a feel-good experience and a healing proposition. Add to that competition from streaming platforms, less venturing into downtowns and art districts, and theater managers are not where they hope to be. In Los Angeles, Megan Pressman, who heads Center Theater Group, is grappling with this reality. Their hits are still doing okay. They might stay a little bit dampened after COVID, but the other shows, kind of average shows, the averages are lower and the lows are even lower. It's really similar to what's happening in movie theaters and cinemas. Smaller audiences can mean fewer donations for regional theaters, which are often nonprofits. At the same time, expenses are up, higher labor costs for technicians and for materials to make sets and costumes. Meanwhile, the pandemic aid, which many theaters relied on to make up for deficits over the last couple of years, is ending. Aid like the shuttered venue operators grant. So we have to significantly cut back to basically work within our own means. So that's where we find ourselves now. So as a result, we've been shrinking programming and reducing our staff. Pressman also made a decision that's shocked the theater world, canceling all performances indefinitely at Center Theater Group's prestigious Mark Taper Forum in downtown Los Angeles. It's one of three venues the company operates and the one most associated with groundbreaking works, such as Angels in America, which premiered there. It's a very complicated time for our theaters. Teresa Eyring heads the Theater Communications Group, an industry research and advocacy firm. She says there's more pain ahead. These organizations in general closed earlier than a lot of other businesses and had to open later for various reasons. It's been a bit more difficult for our sector to rebalance. In the immediate term, unless audiences return in big numbers, Iring expects to see more regional theaters downsizing or closing altogether. I'm Novosafo for Marketplace. Markets Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are each up in the two-tenths of one percent range. The 10-year interest rate is back below four percent now. And here's a number of 100 million, the number of signups in its first week for Threads, the so-called Twitter killer from Facebook's Meta. It's more week one signups than for the AI system ChatGPT last fall. Now, this will cause gnashing of teeth over at Elon Musk's Twitter. But whether users are into threads for the long haul and whether big advertisers will come remains to be seen. 
Now, banks can lend out money, or they can hold on to it just in case. One of America's top banking regulators is banking on the just in case. Here's Federal Reserve Vice Chair for Supervision Michael Barr in a speech this week about keeping banks from failing. Whatever the vulnerability or the shock, capital is able to help absorb the resulting loss, and if sufficient, allow the bank to keep serving its critical role in the economy. This is the year several mid-sized banks went bust. Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes reports on possible new capital requirements. Capital is money banks can easily get a hold of. Some of it's cash, some of it's loans they can call in. And the Brookings Institution's David Wessel says it's always a balancing act for regulators to figure out how much capital is enough. And Michael Barr is saying, I don't think there's enough now. And the banks are going to say, we have enough You're punishing us. Even so, Wessel says, the country's largest banks will prepare to have more capital handy. That means they might lend less or be less likely to do share buybacks. Banking industry consultant Merrill J. Reynolds says he's not so worried about a lending slowdown. In most cases, there's quite a bit of liquidity out there, and banks have resources to still make loans. In the meantime, any proposed rules on capital would have to be approved by the Fed, the FDIC, and the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, which would likely take several years. I'm Stephanie Hughes for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers comprehensive cybersecurity protection while automating cyber defense to stop threats so organizations can thrive. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. And by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.AI. This is Enterprise AI. The huge China-focused tech company Foxconn is pulled out of a $20 billion deal to build a microchip manufacturing plant in India. It was supposed to be a partnership with Indian mining giant Vedanta Gujarat, which is the home state of India's Prime Minister Modi. Foxconn is the big Apple supplier and is also being sued in Ohio for pulling back from an electric vehicle factory in Lordstown. Here's the BBC's Monica Miller. The setback uh, is really quite significant because Prime Minister Narendra Modi has said that chip making was a top priority of India's economic strategy in pursuit of a new era of electronic manufacturing. And it doesn't get much bigger than Foxconn, which makes roughly 70 percent of Apple's iPhones. India estimates its semiconductor market could be worth 63 billion dollars by 2026. Foxconn is looking for ways to push its supply chain outside of China. And India is a very desirable place that they saw to do this. And they still say they do. They still want to support India's efforts. It's just unclear why these two have decided to split at this time. BBC's Monica Miller. Our producers are James Graham, Joe Critcher, Ariana Rosas, Alex Schroeder, and Erica Soderstrom. Senior producer Meredith Garrison-Morby. It's the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Our weather forecast is calling for mostly sunny skies today. Highs in the upper 80s. Clear tonight. Lows around 70 and sunny tomorrow with highs in the low 90s. It is 71 degrees in Boston at just about 9 o'clock. Stay with us. The BBC is next. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. 
This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.